Adrian Marie Brown, a writer, student of miracles and love, emergent strategist, pleasure activist, and happy auntie living in the land of the Lumbee peoples currently known as Durham. And this is How to Survive the End of the World, the podcast I usually do with Autumn, but Autumn had to go pick up a sick baby today, and so I'm doing it without her. Hopefully I don't fail miserably at this, but We are still going to learn about apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity. That's what we're up to today. And I'm actually really excited. Our sibling series continues. And today we have, I believe you two are going to be our youngest sibling movement pair, um, which is exciting. We've got a nice full spectrum. But today we have Benji Hart, Maya Hart, and um, we're all meeting for the first time today. But Benji and I have been in each other's DMs for a couple years now, talking about being multiracial in Black and how that impacts the organizing we do. And I've been sort of tuned in and paying attention to the organizing you're doing in Chicago. And then Maya is has come through the sort of bold realm, the Black Organizing for Leadership and Dignity realm, is an organizer in the Durham area, so my neighbor. And that's the most that I know. I'm like, you're an organizer and you work here locally. And I also know that we have a nibbling relationship because you have a sweet, sweet one by a dear beloved of mine that I call A.A. Ron. So so Benji and Maya, at first, I just want to welcome you to How to Survive the End of the World. Um, Thank you so much for having us. Hi. I'm honored to be here and excited, especially to do this. with Benji, we talk all of the time, but we've never actually shared many like movement related spaces before. So this is really special for us too. Oh, I love that. I really am like, this might be the way the show needs to go forever, but um, you know, what we always love to do is, is start off by just checking in a really basic checking in. How are you right now today? Benji, you want to start us off? Sure. Um, thank you so much again for having us. I'm a longtime listener, so I'm very excited to be here. Um, uh, my name is Benji Hart. Again, I go by they, them pronouns. And um, today I'm feeling grounded. I'm feeling settled. And I've really been looking forward to, as Maya already said, getting to be in conversation with my sibling because we talk so much as Judy's and as, you know, support systems for one another, but we actually don't talk very much in organizing and movement spaces or conversations. So I'm really excited to to get to think through some of those things that we don't necessarily get to think through together um, all the time. So Mm -hmm. I'm super excited about that. And yeah, I feel like that's been my vibe, honestly, for the whole pandemic is feeling like I'm good, I'm here, I'm settled, I'm grounded. And everything around me is terrible and terrifying. So yes. I'm, I'm still very much there today. Yeah, that's great. What about you, Maya? Hey, y'all. Um, yeah, I am Maya. I use any pronouns. I'm in Durham, North Carolina. Today, I'm. it's Friday. You know what? Let me just say that. It's Friday. It is. It's Friday. <laughs> <laughs> that is how I am showing up today. I'm having a very slow 
Friday, sort of a gray, relaxing, slow day and owning that, just loving, loving the slowness of my day. So I'm here and I'm doing well. I love that. Um, I am also here and doing well. The morning had a lot of moving parts to it. And there's always a, um, like the, the sort of rapid two-step moment where it's like, oh, Autumn, Autumn's not going to be here. Do I even know how to do this? Um, <laughs> you know, so there's that kind of quickening of the energy. But being with you all, I can feel it calming back down and just being like, right, we're here. And three people can also have a really great conversation. <laughs> and um, yeah, and I feel curious about you both and excited to, to learn about you both. So yeah, that's how I'm doing. And we start things off with the flume of rage. You know, we take a moment to get things off of our chest. Petty, angry. Flume of rage. Flume of rage. Flume of rage. Flume of rage. I can actually start today. Um, my anger is with sugar, added sugars. And <laughs> I just recently... Um, Again, I'm kind of like in the dive of shifting my relationship to sugar because I, it's one of those things, the pandemic has been really tricky to navigate because every single day is like, well, it's a hard day. You know, you might as exactly. well have some sugar. <laughs> and um, and it's definitely become a more comfortable coping mechanism again after some years of having felt like I had it not necessarily at bay, but in a place that felt okay, felt comfortable. And I, I'm starting the sugar process. And the funniest thing to me is I'm not eating a bunch of added sugars in like my primary foods at all. It's like I have banging choices. I eat like salmon and salads and eggs and like all these things that are just so good for me. And then it's like the straight up cookies. And there's nothing else that tastes like a straight up cookie. There's nothing else that tastes like a straight up ice cream. There's nothing else, you know, like none of the alternatives do what sugar does. And um, it's not the sugar itself. It's the industries around it, the way they create foods that are distinctly designed to have an addictive, impulsive um, impact inside the body. And feeling that, feeling like I'm like, oh, someone who doesn't love me and doesn't really love my body is trying to exact control over my body and control over my attention and my energy and my mood. So you know, which is also helping me frame the 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 sugar shifting as an act of rebellion, and that always helps <laughs> me to get things done. But yeah, I do feel so sad that this gift from the the universe um, has you know has been distorted through these acts of of capitalism and colonialism to become such a drug. So that's my my anger today. Mm -hmm. You know, I was angry about something else, but you actually made, you just brought up something new that now I'm actually really angry about. Yes. And that ahead. is, Benji and I talk about this all the time, but having to eat meals every day, <laughs> still yes. a year and a half, what are we, wow. a year and a half into the pandemic? And meal yes. prep is just, it actually makes me angry pretty much every day deciding deciding how I'm going to fuel myself. Um, I'm <laughs> over it. I have a one-year-old who doesn't allow for me to really think ahead about okay. meals. Um, I'm really, really over it. So um, that's that's my flume of rage today. That's right. <laughs> I have to say, I've really gone the uniform method with food. I'm like, I eat this, and then I eat this, and then I eat this. And it's like, there's basically three things. And Absolutely. Cookies. Benji, what about for you? 
I'm going to switch gears slightly. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> and say um, here, you know, here in Chicago, it's budget season. Um, and we have our mayor, Lori Lightfoot, who's the first black gay mayor of the city, right. um, whose proposed budget for 2022 increases spending on the Chicago Police Department by $200 million um, mm. and would make the budget go from $1.7 billion to $1.9 billion um, in 2022. Um, and that budget, that that 20, uh, that that 200 million increase includes uh, $200,000 for advertising for the police department, $200,000 for propaganda um, for the Chicago Police Department. And as a Black queer person living in the city, um, it was it was primarily Black queer people, Black queer organizers telling people this person is yeah. lying to your face, like do not vote for this person. Yeah. Um, and it's primarily non-Black queer people who did. Um, and now that she is mayor and is doing all the things that Black queer organizers warned she would do, it's primarily Black queer organizers who have the responsibility of calling attention to her record and uh, lifting up their voices to call out the horrible, violent things she's doing and the people who voted for her who are shielding her and not paying attention and allowing her to get away with all the awful, violent things that she's doing. So as a Black queer person living in Chicago, I just kind of feel like I'm living in a constant nightmare. And I'm just so tired of these really sacred identities that we hold being manipulated by the state and abused by the state to silence Black queer people. Using Black queer politicians to silence mm. Black queer communities yeah. is mm. making me rageful. Yeah. No, I mean, it's the twist up, right? It's like, it's not about what you see on the outside. And it's not about, you know, it's like the aspects of identity. I, I read this quote, I think I've said it before on our podcast, but Barbara Smith recently said they ran with the identity and dropped the politics. And I keep thinking about that where it's just like, yes, being right. black and queer doesn't mean that you have been politicized uh, uh, towards your own liberation or towards collective liberation. And that's right. it shows up so often in those po politician spaces um, because it, it is such an act of performance rather than like rigorous political commitment. <laughs> so um, I'm sorry that that's happening. And let's take a deep breath in. Let it out. And all of our listeners, you know, you're always welcome to be fluming alongside, right? Fluming with us if you have to pause and flume all flumes go towards the right place. You know, that energy is important to release. That's what we think. So we now get to move into the sibling basics, the sibling part. And I'm really excited to learn about y'all. So the first question we ask is where are y'all from? So, you know, as these <laughs> things go, we're we're from different places and uh -huh. for almost all these questions i'm gonna be interested to hear maya's answer because uh -huh. i think it'll be interested interesting to hear where we align or where we think of things the same and where we don't uh -huh. um but i would say where we have lived has primarily followed our dad's uh career okay. um our parents met at amherst college um which is where 
uh, our dad is currently a professor. Um, they met as freshmen there. Um, and our mom is from a white middle-class family. Our dad is from a black poor and working class family. Um, so our dad was a first generation college student um, uh -huh. when our parents met. Um, and I was born uh, when he was getting his PhD um, in Boston. Uh, and then we moved to Iowa um, where he had his first professorship at the University of Iowa. So Maya was actually born in Iowa City, Iowa um, oh, wow. when, when I was five years old. Um, and then two years later, uh, dad got a professorship at Amherst College where he had graduated from. So we moved back to Massachusetts to Amherst. Um, and that's where both of us grew up. Um, okay. So usually when people ask, where are you from? I say Amherst, Massachusetts, because that's where I spent the majority of my childhood. Got it. Yeah, I was going to say being from Iowa City, Iowa is definitely my fun fact in a new room of people. Um, there are Black people. There really are Black people in Iowa. Um, there are Black people in Iowa. <laughs> I was just like, so corn and Black people. Um, so yeah, so we're five years apart. Um, we moved from Iowa to Amherst, Massachusetts when I was two. Um, so I, I really don't remember much about the first two years of my life in Iowa. So I definitely consider Amherst home. Um, and I think to this day, still consider Amherst home. I've been in North Carolina for three years now. And Benji, you've been in Chicago for eight. Is that right? Nine. Nine. Um, yeah. But I still refer, um, as, as much as I consider North Carolina home today, I still refer to Amherst as home. Um, and just thinking about the origins of our family and our parents, it's actually really special that Benji ended up in Chicago and that I ended up in Durham because my mom um, grew up outside of Chicago um, oh, wow. and has a, has a sibling there today. And um, although my dad grew up in Massachusetts, historically, we have ancestral roots in Durham, North Carolina. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, that we weren't even fully, fully aware of in terms of name. Um, yeah, names and more details until I, I actually moved here within the past few years. So we're both, uh, that's amazing. Yeah, so we're both kind of living out our, our lives in areas that have really deep historical meanings for our family, but never would have anticipated, I don't think, um, being in either location. I love that. I love that. And I love also that you're five years apart. Autumn and I are also five years apart and it's a, it's a good age. <laughs> it's a good distance. Um, where you're like, oh, we can be distinct and also aligned. Um, mm. So you shared that about, you know, the five years between you. Is there anything else you want to share about your family structure? Um, are there other siblings, you know, were there other extended family around you or chosen family that played a part in, in what you consider family? Um, have your families expanded? I, I yeah. <laughs> to me, fam when I hear the word family, I think of like our, I guess, quote unquote, nuclear family, meaning the two of us, we're the uh -huh. only two siblings. Um, and okay. then our mom and our dad, um, who are now also in North Carolina. Um, though I think, Benji, maybe it'd be interesting for you to sort of highlight the larger differences between our mom and dad's side of the families. Yeah, I think, you know, we have... Uh, a black side of the family and a white side of the family. Mm -hmm. um, and I think people often, people often have a lot of questions about that, what that's like. Whereas I think for me, the the more 
stark differences between our family actually have to do with class rather than race. Um, Yes. And coming from a middle class, upper middle class family on one side and a more poor and working class, more mixed class um, family on the other side, I think was more navigating that was more complicated in a lot of ways than navigating racial differences, though certainly those were there as well. Um, Mm. But yeah, our dad's family, even though, as Maya said, we have um, we've like recently reconnected, rediscovered our ancestral roots in North Carolina, which actually date back to slavery. Um, And like we actually have, we found enslaved uh, ancestors from the Durham area that we are descended from. Um, Our dad's side of the family has lived in the Northeast and primarily in Massachusetts for many generations. Um, And there are not a lot of Black people um, in that area. Um, So like pretty much whenever we meet someone who's Black and from like New York State or Western Massachusetts, it's like, how are you our cousin you have right. to be related to us in some We're probably way. related because <laughs> there really are not a lot of folks up there so even just how they got up there is its own uh story um mm-hmm. but because we grew up in massachusetts we grew up in sort of closer proximity to the black side of our family um okay. than the white side of our family um and do you and- know how they made that migration like do you know how they got up north our grandfather uh our great grandfather rather okay. um was the original person who left North Carolina and moved originally to Albany, New York, um, and then ended up in Western Massachusetts. Um, So on that side of the family, that's sort of our, yeah, our grandfather's side, we can trace back now all the way to Durham and all the way to enslavement, actually. Um, Our grandmother's side of the family, it's actually a little bit more complicated because they've been there longer. And so it's actually unclear how they ended up in that part of the country. Um, Some of that history is just lost with time. Some of it is things that people don't want to talk about. Um, There's like a a lot of folks on that side are are light-skinned Black folks. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a history of passing on that side as well, which is something that now people are not as excited to talk about. Um, Right. I mean, so, I guess so, never. <laughs> I was right. like, I wonder when that'll ever be a, like, right. look, let's talk about it. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so actually less clear how our grandmother's side of the family got to that mm-hmm. area. But mm-hmm. on our grandfather's side, um, we trace it back to our great-grandfather. I don't think I ever knew that story of migration of our great-great-grandfather to, um, to all yeah. Yeah, yeah, he was born in Henderson, North right. Carolina, which is which is not far from y'all. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of hearts in the in the Durham area yeah. uh, that are that are sort of our ancestral family, even if we're not, you know, sort of related in that way in the current modern context. Yes. Um, there's like a lot of heart history in the in the triangle. And I think at le- I think maybe they sold it, but I know we have some. There was family of ours that owned owned land in Henderson, North Carolina, um, where there's a church or maybe they sold it maybe to that church. Um, but yeah, but, but we've, yeah. we've, our historically our families has owned land in the area as well. Wow. Okay. So I'm really fascinated now to hear this next question. So how would you describe the political orientations of your family? I think, um, broadly, <laughs> I think, and Benji sort of highlighted this, but I think the white side of our family broadly is wealthier, um, more like white liberal, 
I would describe them mm-hmm. as. Um, and then mm-hmm. again, very broadly speaking, the black side of our family is working class, um, more conservative. Um, and folks on the black side of our family, uh, there's a lot of military veterans um, and cops, for example. Um, so like Benji said, the race and class dynamic um, has informed a lot of those, a lot of those differences across our sides of the family. Um, but I, our parents, um, I mean, we're, we have an incredibly close relationship with our parents and I think they've informed much of who we are. And I think our um, politicization has also really informed who our parents are. Um, so in terms of like a political mm-hmm. relationship with our parents, um, I feel like the four of us are really, really well aligned, I would say. Oh, what a totally. blessing. That's rare. Yeah. <laughs> Anything is, you would add to is. that, Benji? Very little. No, Maya, Maya hit it on the head. And yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I definitely feel like we're a product of both our extended families and the things that they've instilled in us, as well as the very unique things that our parents, um, raised us as and raised us to believe. And yeah, completely agree that we're very close with our parents. And also I think a beautiful part of our story is the, the things our parents, the things our parents instilled in us, but also as Maya said, the ways that I've watched our parents shift and our parents um, grow politically as we've been out in the world fighting our own battles and the things that they've learned, the things that they very actively and intentionally learned from us um, Mm. is just one of the, one of the many things that I love about them. So maybe that'll come up as you're telling us the next piece of this, which the question we had is how, how did you get politicized? Like what was the journey for you? You know, were you, was it something that happened at home? Like, were there political conversations in the household that felt like, you know, I know from a young age that I'm supposed to be part of a movement and like, that's what I'm up to? Or was it something else that happened later? Was it a distinct process for each of you or something you experienced together? I'm only laughing because I think, I think our stories are so incredibly different. <laughs> oh, um, cool. Benji, Great. whose story makes sense to tell first? <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't know. I leave that up to you. You can you can decide who you want to go first. I think you should go first. I'm going off of um Makani and Robin, who oldest always goes first. <laughs> <laughs> Good listening. <laughs> we we can switch that up at some point, but but I'm fine to start. Um I think uh it's hard to point to a moment. It's hard to point to a moment. Um but I, from a very young age, was very proud to be Black um, and just always had a strong identity as not just a Black person, but as someone who was connected to a long lineage of people who had fought against injustice and a long lineage of people who had survived a lot of violence. Um, and I think Did from a very young age- Did that come from your parents? I think, yes. I think my dad- um, I, f- I feel like we could just talk about dad for a very long time in and of yeah. itself. I think our right. dad being uh, coming from a poor and working class background and now being a tenured professor at an elite college, he just has a, a, a story that is not like a lot of other people's story. It's not a, a common narrative. Um, and I think it's also... Uh, a lot of Black folks and a lot of poor and working class folks who have that narrative are often folks who who very much believe in the system, um, like folks who have actually been able to escape poverty and been able to escape 
disenfranchisement and become as privileged and as like institutionally connected as our dad is. Mm. I think are very often people who are like, you know, the system worked for me, so it should work for you. Um, And I've always really appreciated that my dad is not like that. Um, Mm. And uh, he's always been very cognizant about his story not being used and not being abused by other Mm. people um, to justify their beliefs and their values about um, how the systems and structures of this country work. Um, and I think knowing knowing that we were going to grow up in a very different environment than the one he grew up in, he was very conscious of how he raised us um, and was very conscious of, of course, wanting us to have access to the things that he didn't have access to, um, but also wanting us to recognize how lucky we were and not only to be grateful for those things, but to recognize that in a lot of ways, it's luck that we got those things. It's not about, I think it was very clear with us that it's not about like deserving or hard work. It's about like, (laughs) you're lucky that you get to go to high quality public schools and you're lucky that you get to live in a house and have your own room. And like, you didn't get these things because just because I worked hard, you got these things in a lot of ways because I lucked out and we shouldn't have to live in a society and in a world where you have to luck out to get access to basic things. Um, I think that was something he was like, like I really appreciated that he didn't raise us to think I worked hard (laughs) and that's why you're middle-class. Like that was never a narrative that we were fed um, growing up. And I think going off of that, knowing that we were light-skinned and, and not phenotypically black in a lot of ways, certainly not in the way that he was. um, I think he was also very, intentional and cognizant about raising us in Black environments um, Mm -hmm. and making sure that we understood that not just that, again, we were Black as individuals, but that being Black came with community and that being Black came with connection and obligation to a larger collective um, and to fight for, to fight against things that were wrong and to fight fight against things that were unjust, um, that that comes with being Black, I think is something that our dad taught us from a very early age. (laughs) And I'll start with that. I'll start with that. That's a beautiful beginning. I feel like so much softness for your dad um, and all of that. Thank you. He's such a special person. Yeah, sounds like it. Shout out to dad. Shout out to dad. Um, that's interesting. It's interesting to hear you lay it out in that way. I think like a big part of my story is that, so I was going to bring this up later, but Benji literally came out of the womb, like talking about social justice and racial justice and being (laughs) an organizer truly. Um, And I could not have been any different. Like I did not want to hear a single conversation about being black or about race and class and all of these things for, for many years. Um, which I'm not necessarily proud of, but it's it's okay because I'm where I'm at. I'm where I'm at today, yeah. and I'm grateful. And it's right. true. Yeah. yeah, it's your truth. It's, it's your exactly. Um, and so even even you hearing you talk about dad that way, I'm like, oh, I wasn't really aware. Not because it wasn't true, but mm-hmm. it just wasn't what I was thinking about, or like, or noticing yeah. about about dad or mom. Um, but I actually, I grew up playing competitive tennis from a really young age, um, like eight or nine. And that really, uh, that really dictated my social circles and who I was around. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So while Benji was doing dance and all these other after school programs that were primarily with black people and people of color, I was traveling um, most weekends and practicing almost every day, um, which was primarily with, especially in New England, primarily with white, really (laughs) rich families. Um, Right. And so that combined with not wanting to talk about anything remotely (laughs) political, um, yeah, really informed much of my growing up. Um, And were you good at tennis? Like, were you like on that path to Naomi Osakaville? Not, Um, not quite, not quite. I was, I was, I was um, one of the better players in the state of Massachusetts and ultimately ended up playing tennis in college. Um, Oh, and wow. did a lot of traveling nationally um, through high school. So that really was much of my social social life. Go ahead, Benji. <laughs> I know I, I see it. Benji's like queued up, like, hold up. <laughs> we need to talk if about it's okay it. for me to interject. I know you're about to tell the story <laughs> that I want to tell, but I'll let you have it. I'm gonna tell I'm gonna tell a bunch of stories, but I'm sure it's gonna leave some for you. But A <laughs> A Maya was such a jock growing up. Like Maya was an incredibly talented athlete, which was also hilarious. Her coming as a second child because I was a tear. Like I was so bad at sports, and my parents put me in soccer when I was in kindergarten. And I I think I played for two years. I have no memories of kicking a ball. I have zero memories of kicking a ball. And they (laughs) took me out of soccer because in in the middle of one of the games, I started making dandelion jewelry in the middle of the field. (laughs) And my parents were like, it's a wrap. This is not going to happen. So they took me out of soccer and I don't think I ever did a sport ever again. So Maya came after and was a complete jock. And she was so just naturally gifted at any sport they put her into. She was like an incredible basketball player, incredible soccer player. And it was really tennis that became her passion. And tennis was the thing that really called to her. And she knows now, she didn't know it at the time. But me and my parents were having fights about this while she was playing tennis because I was so mad that they were putting her in tennis. I was like, she's so good at basketball. She's so good at soccer. Like, why do you have to put her in the whitest sport? Like, why? Do not do this. Don't do that to her. Don't do that to anybody. But something that I think was very unique about the way our parents raised us was they really did raise us as individuals. They really Uh were cognizant about like, and they told me constantly when we were having these arguments, like she is a different person than you are. She has different interests than you do. And and we need to let her figure out who she wants to be and pursue her interests the way that she wants to, even if you don't want her to, like that's not a call you get to make and that's not a call we get to make. And that drove me up the wall, but it was such, it was such good parenting. Um, and it was, I think, I think it really helped. I mean, my, I'm gonna let you tell it, but I really feel like <laughs> them, them making those choices for you then helped you become the person you are today. Yeah. I think it at least allowed me the freedom to like eventually find my way and find what mattered to me. And it wasn't yours. It happened much quick, much more quickly for you and a lot earlier on in your life, but I'm, I'm finding my way. I'm finding my way. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Thanks to you. Shout out to you. Um, but the story I wanted to tell that I think perfectly like shows how different we were um, as teenagers, like adolescent youth teenagers, was I had come back from a tennis tournament, and I think my dad, my dad would always travel with me usually, 
and I was, t- and we were just telling a story about how the match went. And my dad, I think my dad said out loud, like, oh, you know, when during the warm up, Maya really noticed that this person had a really weak backhand and like just decided the whole match, like attack the weakness, like attack the backhand, the whole, the whole match. And so I won that match. Um, and Benji's reaction was like, how could you ever exploit someone's weakness like that? Like, don't you feel terrible? Like, this is, that's so mean. Like, that is so cruel. Why would you ever do that? He's <laughs> <laughs> like, collective-minded, collective-minded. Right. right. I don't remember that, but I believe it. Um, that's so sweet. Yes, that perfectly represents our different mentalities growing up. Yeah. Um, But, you know, so Benji was five years older, so we were not, and clearly in different moments of our life and having different interests, and we were not close, really, I would say. I think maybe really young we were. Like, I know, Benji, you loved playing with me, like, when I was little, little. Um, But then I don't remember being particularly close, especially in my teenage years. Um, I think because the age gap and, again, just wildly different interests and experiences in that moment. But I do always remember having you in my ear, like you, you, Benji was always trying to push me to have these conversations around my blackness and around class and who, who I was spending my time around. Um, and I actually feel like you did a really wonderful job of sort of like keeping those things in my ear and like, you know, nudging me, but also not alienating me and forcing me to have these conversations that I just wasn't ready to have in that moment. Um, but you were always there. You were definitely always there. <laughs> like, where did you find the patience, Benji? I'm, it means a lot to hear her say that now because I remember being a jerk. I remember <laughs> I remember being really mean and really judgmental. So it's actually really nice to hear Maya be like, you didn't push me too hard because I my parents were definitely like, stop pushing her so hard. Oh, wow. They're like, she's got to be her. And then yeah. Benji, for you... I know it started early. I know you were in that space, but then what do you feel like was that moment where you're like, okay, I'm claiming a, pol- a political you know, identity for myself or like this is, you know, like that, that mark where it was like beyond just loving my blackness, you know, like what was that place where it's like, I see how this is all connected. This is going to be my work, you know? That's a good question too. Again, I don't know if there's a moment. Uh-huh. Um, always proud to be Black, always very much identified with my Blackness. Um, and then I came out when I was 14. Um, wow. And I think that, you know, in ways that I didn't understand was a politicizing moment, um, especially because when I came out, I really didn't have any images of other Black queer people, like, existing Um, so I kind of thought they didn't, you know, as, as a 14, 15 year old, I kind of, it didn't occur to me that other black queer people existed really. Um, and I actually didn't identify as gay when I initially came out and I didn't understand that to be a political choice, but it absolutely was because the only images of gayness that I had were very white and very masculine and very middle class to to upper class and for me it was more just like a logical decision of like well if if being gay is listening to musical theater and (laughs) doing coke in a club then I'm not gay because I don't do any of those things so I didn't things like that where I didn't understand that as a political choice but it actually absolutely was um and I really didn't start outwardly identifying as queer actually even though I was out 
Um, I really didn't start identifying as queer until um, when I was 16, I was introduced to Vogue and I started voguing. Um, and that was really the first time that I, A, learned that not only did other Black queer people exist, but that we had our own culture, we had our own history, we had our own spaces that we had carved out over generations. Um, and like learning that was very revolutionary for me as a young Black queer person. So Vogue was, I think, actually this really important politicizing in terms of investing in my feminist, investing in my queerness, and and seeing those things as deeply connected to my Blackness rather than as divergent from them or, or obstacles to it, which is in a lot of ways how I had seen it up to that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also I was going to New York um, to, to Vogue and walk balls and stuff. And that was actually when I, when I first started being politicized around policing, because um, I also had my first violent interaction with the police mm-hmm. um, while on a trip to New York to, to Vogue and to walk balls. Um, I got arrested um, in front of my friend's apartment um, in the Bronx. Um, and it was just a really uh, traumatizing and violent um, event um, that... Yeah you know, coming from a police family and also coming from a middle-class suburban community. I just never experienced the police system in that way. Um, And that moment was definitely radicalizing for me and definitely made me start to think about um, and focus on the police system um, as an important target for for resistance. That's right. And what about for you, Maya? Like, you know, it was a slow burn, but then what what eventually lit that fire for you? Yeah, I think, um, again, I went to college in Massachusetts, um, played tennis there competitively, which, again, informed a lot of my experience. And it wasn't until the end of my uh, four years in college that I started um, taking some more history classes that started to, like, I was like, okay, okay, okay. I see what y'all might be might be onto here. Um, and then also Africana studies. I took a colorism class my senior year that was really, really informative. And that professor actually is a dear friend of mine now who really helped me out in, with some challenging personal uh, experiences that came up my, my senior year in college too. Um, and so when sort of like the academic interests started to peak I was like, oh, maybe I want to be a lawyer um, and thought about, and that's when I sort of started to make the connections between the law and criminalization of black people and the police. And I was like, uh-huh. oh, this is like kind of what Benji, <laughs> I think has been talking to me about, or like, this is what Benji's into. Um, so I want to say that's probably even when we started first sort of reconnecting in a really special way. Um, wow. The end of my college year. So around 2015, 2016, um, and then I ended up living in New York City for two years following call at my college experience and worked at a public defender's office, um, helping to helping, uh, excuse me, helping to represent people who were incarcerated um, and okay. working directly with them to prepare them for their parole board hearings. And so living a living in New York and not living in a small white town for the first time. Um, seeing that, seeing that work on the front lines, actually stepping foot in these, in these jails and prisons and meeting with people and forming these really special relationships, powerful relationships. Um, and then being in communication more with Benji. And then Benji ultimately was like, have you heard of BYP 100 black youth project? Um, Uh and Benji knew they had a New York chapter. Um, and I don't, I'm curious, Benji, 
if you like sensed in that moment that I was sort of ready for that, um, or that, that might pique my interest. Cause I don't think I would have been interested in that much sooner than you initially, initially brought it up. Um, but I want to, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I want to say that was tw- around 2017, um, where Benji suggested I reach out to the local chapter of BYP 100. Um, and then from there, it was just like a rapid, rapid, transformation and politicization because all of a sudden I was in black only black queer spaces um, with people who had been, I mean, all different ways to get to that space, but just like clear abolitionists and so unapologetically black and queer. And I was like, Oh shit. Like this is incredible. (laughs) Yes. Um, Yes. And then the homecoming. (laughs) Yeah. And have stayed deeply connected. Um, to BYP 100. When I moved to Durham, I, I joined the Durham chapter, um, which I haven't been as deeply plugged into recently. Um, but BYP 100 was really my first uh, like black movement organization that I strongly, strongly identified with and started understanding mm-hmm. myself as an abolitionist. Um, and over the past like five years, I would say, Benji, we've like all of a sudden we have all of these things in common and all of these things to talk about. And have just like really reconnected in a really, really beautiful way. Oh, this is making me so <laughs> happy. I mean, like it makes me happy because I'm like uh, thinking about 2017 BYP 100 and just that the how what an invigorating firework of an organization it was. And I just feel like it has such a solid pathway inside of it for that politicization. You know, it's just sort of like, look. We are clear. We're starting here, and you can catch up to this place. But this is where we want to be—that unapologetic blackness, that love. Um, that makes me so happy, and and I think this is a natural, again, natural flow into this next piece because it's it's really bringing us current, which is what now currently feels aligned about the work that you're doing in the world. What still feels distinct or different? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, my defining identity right now is that I'm a mom. Um, and I gave birth to our son, June, um, almost exactly a year ago. He just turned one and happy birthday. birthday. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and I've been doing, so sort of coming from that community organizing background, I actually moved into reproductive justice organizing before, even before I even well, I've, I've always knew I was going to be a mom, but before I got pregnant and even was really intentionally thinking about getting pregnant, started working with uh-huh. Sister Song, um, Women, of, Women, Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective. Um, and for me, it was the first time that I realized that caretaking and raising families is like a political act. Um, I always knew I wanted, I always loved caretaking. I've always babysat. I always knew I wanted to be a mom. And to me, that was never connected to my politics. And then yes. when I understood reproductive justice as a framework and got into birth work and being trained as a doula, I was like, oh my gosh, these go hand in hand and you actually can't separate these two things at all. Yeah. Um, and so I've been doing reproductive justice organizing for um, a couple years now. And I mean, I see that as so deeply inter- intertwined with Benji's work um, when it comes to queer and trans resistance to policing in particular, um, especially when we think about reproductive justice as the ability to decide if and when you want to have a family, raise children, and the conditions under which you can do so in, in safe and sustainable ways. So that's so deeply tied to 
safety of of our people um, and historically oppressed people specifically. So I, I mean, I just think they're so deeply intertwined. I, I would say my work is more specifically around like mothering and parenting um, and reproductive yeah. rights specifically, but I really see our work as really deeply intertwined. Powerful. I completely agree with yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It really is amazing, especially thinking back to when we were younger and when we fought so much about a lot of these issues and about our lack of alignment. Um, it's like really amazing mm-hmm. how aligned we are. Really not that long in the future, really only, you know, like 10 years later. Um, That's beautiful. It's like pretty amazing how aligned we are. Um, and even that, that was something I used to vent to dad when we were little being like, oh my God, she doesn't get it. Like, what are we going to do? How are we going to make her get it? And dad was always like, she's going to get it. Like, give her time. And he was always very adamant that that it took him until his 20s and even his 30s to become politicized. Yeah. And that everyone's trajectory is different. And That's right. he used to say, yeah, Maya's a lot more like me than you are. Like, give her time. She's going to get there. And mm. A, he was right. B, it's like wild. Yeah, now how aligned our work feels and how much we can share, we can process, we can learn from each other um, is really cool, is really special. And Before yeah. you go on, I just have a question there, which is, what, is your mom not political? Or like, would she hold the or more like a neutral energy or, you know, like, I I just feel a curiosity about it. I would say that our mom is political in different ways. Uh I would say that, that neither one of our parents are activists or were, you know, sort of identified or involved in activism in that way when we were coming up, but both of them were very politically minded. I feel like, especially in the way that they raised us, I feel like we were their political project Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, And I think, whereas our dad was certainly the person talking to us, exposing us and instilling in us a race politic and a pro black politic. I would say we get our feminism from our mom. I would say um, like me and my mom were very, very close growing up. And I feel like the way she allowed me to maintain my my gentleness and my feminist as a young person mm. was very much a way that she was uh, A, both caring for me as her child, but B, politicizing me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and um, like, I feel like so much of my current gender identity as like, a non-binary person for lack of a better term um, and my commitment to black feminism. Um, like that for me is so much of a, a, a melding of the two sort of branches that mm-hmm. both of our parents, I feel like instilled in us um, from a very young age. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Maya, you want to add anything? Yeah, no, I agree with all of that. And just our mom too has been super um, supportive and our, encouraging of our work specifically around black liberation like as a white woman recognizes Mm -hmm. these are my black children and i'm committed to to their well-being great okay so carry on so you were saying benji um you know (laughs) about the work that you do now and where it's aligned and, and distinct yeah i really love maya's focus on reproductive justice and on parenting 
because she has genuinely always wanted to be a parent. Like she was, when she was like four, she wanted to babysit the two-year-olds. Like she's always knew she loved babies, even when she was like low-key, still a baby. Um, Mm. So it's just been such a natural progression, Um, not just for her being a parent, um, but for that being where a lot of her political work resides and revolves around, I think is like a really beautiful bringing together of all the things that she loves and cares about. And I feel very much, frankly, aligned with all those things. Um, But uh, as a Black femme gender non-conforming person, I feel like a lot of my work is very much focused on police abolition um, Mm -hmm. as kind of a linchpin of police, prison, and military abolition. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm especially, especially interested in how those systems impact Black trans and queer people. and centering Black women, centering Black trans folks um, in narratives and struggles um, for abolition and for Black liberation. Beautiful. I see the Venn diagram. <laughs> like, I'm like, yes, the overlap yeah. is very clear. And then those different focuses also make sense. And as I'm sitting here looking at both of y'all, I'm realizing too, like the role that grief has played in in both of our organizing work. And I'm thinking about your um, most recent book as well, Adrian. Um, uh-huh. But I know Benji, you had that essay in, I believe it was entitled, the book was Rebellious Morning. Um, and yes, I have. Yeah. And so Benji has an essay in there that just talks about uh, the role of grief and moving through it and how much space that actually can create when we, when we allow ourselves, allow ourselves that space to grieve. Um, and becoming a mom in the past year and, and moving Mm -hmm. towards postpartum support in particular, which I'm really, really just, that's, that's what I, that is my jam right now. That's what I really am, am caring about. And the process of becoming a mom to me has been like, if I could sum it up in one word, it would be grief. Um, Mm -hmm. And so much grief in regards to what I had to leave behind of myself and of my life and of my identity um, to take on this new role that just happened in a matter of, of seconds, really. Um, and for me, I'm, I'm really interested and excited to talk about uh, the grieving, the grieving process associated with motherhood and parenting and the need to really, really honor um, and, and create space that's, that doesn't require shame to, to say, to just bring mm. to the front that like, there are a lot of days I'm not excited to be a mom <laughs> or a parent. And I really miss being able to sleep in and being able to travel last minute and being able to think about myself. Um, And so that has really brought up a lot of feelings of grief that I did not anticipate at all that I think is not, um, I think it's a really common experience that we don't often see talked about explicitly. So I'm just thinking about grief and the way that that is tied into, into all of our work. Oh, I really appreciate you weaving that in. I do feel like that as a doula, I'm like, I feel like I see that so often and mm. spoken about so rarely. Um, and I do postpartum is my jam too. <laughs> like mm. I have two close friends who just had little ones and I'm just like, I just love watching the the shape shifting of a pair to a family or a family to an expansion yeah. or um it it really is it's like you have to grieve what was because something new is here now and um uh, i love that i hope you write about that or teach about that or find find a way for that story to be told um so the final question of the 
the sibling basics is what do people need to understand about your sibling? Like, what do you wish everybody knew about your sibling? You go first, Benji. <laughs> um, I'm going to start with the shady part and say awesome. that Maya is so weird. <laughs> Maya is such a weirdo. And no one clocks it. Like, mm. no one notices it. And when we were little... She was always like the popular girl in her class. She was always like the mean, she was always like part of the mean uh-huh. girl clique. And I was like, if y'all would see how this person acts at home, like this person would have no street cred. This person would have no cool points. Such a little nerd, such a little weirdo. You're welcome. You're welcome. But, but you know, that's how you, that's how you got to where you are today. Um, and, um, on the realer tip, on the on the less jokey tip and the realer tip, yeah. Um, I I really want everyone to know about my sibling that they have just always been authentically themselves, even when who they are has changed dramatically. Yeah. They have always been authentically themselves, mm. um, and I think the thing I admire about her the most is her intuition. And mm. her ability to just know what she needs and know what is best for her. And she's always right. I I take forever to make decisions. I'm very calculated, very careful, very weighing of pros and cons. And I always make <laughs> the wrong decision. And she Sorry, just will be like, I want to have a baby. I want to move to North Carolina. I'm going to buy a house. And I'm always like, oh, my God, those are big decisions. Are you sure you don't want to make a pros and cons list? And, <laughs> and then make she the just decision. does it. And <laughs> she's always right. It's always the right mm. choice for her. And just how well she knows herself and how unafraid she is to listen to her own gut is just like one of the most special qualities that she has. I love that. And I, I love the swooning look on Maya's face right now. So <laughs> Wait, and Benji, what's your sign? I am Gemini Sun, Gemini Rising, Aquarius Moon. <laughs> when you said that list and, and choices thing, I was just like, it's Gemini or Libra? Which one is <laughs> um, beautiful? And what about you, Maya? I am a Cancer Sun, deeply through and through. Um, Leo rising deeply through and through Pisces moon. Ooh. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Those are all, those are signs that, I mean, those are things you have to commit oh, to. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I am good to go. <laughs> okay. Beautiful. Um, so what do people need to understand about Benji? Yes. Um, to model after Benji, to start with the shade, um, Benji cannot keep track of anything. We play a game when they leave our house every time in Massachusetts of what Benji left behind. And then my mom and then my mom has to mail a package. Um, I believe you lost your, was it your debit card you lost the other, the other time you were in Durham recently? Yes, that is true. Yes. Um, Can't argue with that. It's, it's cute though. It's, it's endearing. Um, Sounds like there's receipts for that one. So. And then more sincerely, um, I really, truly admire the way that you live out your political values and identities um, in every aspect of your life. I think um, it is common that, you know, folks have these really sharp ideas in certain spaces, and then it's much harder to live those out 
outside of those particular spaces and you approach all of your relationships and um, anything you do outside of intentional organizing spaces, I think in a really principled, loving, caring, just truly like with the love of black people is just seen in every way that you show up in every room. And you're really committed to having these conversations outside of your work with family, for example, that it can be really, really challenging. And I think I tend to want to avoid those things. And you're like, no, this is who I am. This is what I care about. And we have to have these conversations um, in all in all of the spaces that I show up in in my life. And I really, really admire that about you. Mm. Thank you. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Um, and thanks for everything y'all shared. You know, this is just a beginning, right? But I, I love getting to hear people weave the stories and did you learn new things? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Um, so the next little segment that we do before we end is just pop cultural things that are helping you survive. We call it top culture and it can really be anything. Uh, usually when autumn is here, it's something that's five to 10 years old, but um, it can be current. It can be very ancient. It's just whatever you are turning to. It can be music, books, television, art, um, memes, you know, whatever is like, this is something in the culture that is moving me right now. So I have a few, I always have a few, but um, what do y'all have? Yeah, I can start. Um, So I don't know about you, Benji, but I did not grow up watching Girlfriends. Um, And of course, (laughs) when it came on Netflix recently, when I was pregnant, uh, my partner and I binge watched all, I think, eight seasons in a matter matter of weeks um, as I was just resting, preparing, (laughs) spending a lot of time on the couch. Um, And I absolutely loved it and am now watching it through the entire all eight seasons again um, for the second time. And it is just the perfect put the baby to sleep, pour myself a glass of wine, lay down on the couch and watch five episodes of Girlfriends before bed. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Girlfriends, you can't go wrong. I love that. Um, And I really appreciate the scholarship level when you you go to watching it the second time (laughs) from the beginning. That's you become a girlfriend scholar. So uh, Biggie, what about for you? I would say we're both big Zaza fans. Zaza, um, for those who don't know, being the the very young person who first went viral um, singing and dancing to Water by Schoolboy Q. Mm-hmm. Um, we love Zaza. We're big <laughs> Zaza fans. And last year she came out with a Halloween-themed song, Monsters Under My Bed. And wow. it just... It was just, I loved it so much. It's October, so I'm like, yes, okay. I get to bring out monsters under my bed again. So that has definitely been on loop in my house. It's definitely been blasting in my house. The fiery Zaza. My dream is my dream is for my child June to be a feature on one of Zaza's songs. <laughs> Oh wow! Is it like that? Okay, manifesting, manifesting. I see it. Um, I really love it. I'm like, I can't wait to. I'm like, Zaza is too, truly new for me. So I'm just like, this is going to be very exciting for me. Wow. Okay, I'm going to watch this as soon as I get off. So, <laughs> um, mine. 
I have a few things. It's like basically a mixtape. So Billie Eilish has a new album out that has some really, it's a, Billie Eilish is like mood music to me. Like it's just like a certain mood where I'm like, I'm just where I am. Billy like meets that moment for me. Um, and Jojo and now also both have new albums out. And these are all artists that I have liked. Um, I feel like I was like, I like them before other people realize how great they are. And, um, and all of them have produced good. These are solid albums that feel like they're, they're reflecting on this moment. Like each of them have songs that I'm like, this is pandemic music. (laughs) So I feel like I'm going to be building a pandemic mixtape. There's also a song on little Nas X's new album, which I think is actually really solid. Like it's a really solid offer, which I'm excited about because I felt like he's so great at the performance performative aspect of what he's doing. Like I am blasting through all the barriers and I am, you know, playing in the realm of uncomfortable, you know, uncomfortable listeners, uncomfortable watchers. Like I'm just really going there. But then he has this song with Miley Cyrus called Am I Dreaming that is a ballad and it, they both sound beautiful on it. And it's just a really tender, like, I think of it as like an act of queer vulnerability. Like it just feels like, oh, there's this this other side that's not the bombastic in your face side, but it's the thing that kind of drives the need to have that bombastic side because it's the tenderness of feeling rejected and feeling like, oh, I could never be the favorite child. I could never be the most beloved because of 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 the hate that's in your eyes when you look at me. It's such a beautiful song. And then I finally finished, and I'm also late on this, but I finally finished The Handmaid's Tale. Um, And it took a while. It's very hard to watch. I find it like a very hard to watch show. And it's always interesting to me because people are like, The Handmaid's Tale, well, that's what happened during slavery. We already know about this. I'm like, yes, we absolutely have this in our ancestral memory. And then the show posits like what happens if that happened now? Like what's what happens if it's new? And I found the ending to be really satisfying. So I wanted to name that, that for people who <laughs> maybe like watch the first season and were like, this shit's hard. Um, it is hard, but I also think you could skip to this last season and watch the last few episodes and find satisfaction, which, you know, if, if you're like, I can't sign up for the whole thing. Um, but I found the, la- the final episode, I was just like, huh. Well, that feels good. <laughs> so um, those are all of mine. There's a lot of them, but I do I do a lot of taking in the culture. I'm like l- always listening to stuff as I write. And I'm, I'm really into like what music works for writing, what music gets me to a certain place mood wise. So thank you all listeners for listening to our show. Thank you, Benji and Maya, for being here with us. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Into the World PC. We're also on Facebook at Into the World Show. You can make a sustaining donation to our show by visiting our page, patreon.com slash Into the World Show. We have exciting merch in development right now. So um, I guess that's a good motivation to, to become a patron because then you get 
somehow it's connected when you become a patron to getting a unicorn fanny pack. So I don't quite understand how it all works because that's not, (laughs) I was like, I don't do that part, but I do know it's coming. Another incredible thing you can do to help our show sustain ourselves is to write a review on Apple Podcasts if you're an iPhone person or spread the word amongst your friends if you have an Android. How to Survive the End of the World is produced and edited by the incomparable and magical Zach Rosen, transcribed by Jess Pinkham, and the music for today's show comes from Tunde Alanaran and Mother Cyborg. See you next time. Thank, Thank you, you for so having much. us.